0: Today, we're going to be in Job and a few chapters of Genesis, all right? And the two are actually intertwined, all right? Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. And Job is a contemporary of Abram. So while God is working in Abram's life and Sarai's life and preparing them for this journey of faith and this this Opportunity to be used by God, they're in the area of Babylon, Iraq, okay? But you've got this guy Job and some of his buddies, and they're in the area of Jordan, and some speculate as far out as maybe Kazakhstan, okay? So, pretty good distance removed, and God is working in Job's life and through Job's life. And what's interesting is, In Job, you have a man who is seasoned in his walk of faith. He is a veteran. He is awesome. Then you've got Abram, and he's just getting started. And we watch him kind of limp into this relationship and I don't say limp in a bad way, but here you have Job who, yeah, he's getting knocked about a little bit, and he's, he's being challenged, but he, he just keeps pressing on and keeps holding to God. And Job, I mean, uh, Abram, he gets going, and he's trusting God but then he's saying, well, how can I know I can trust you? And then, you know, he's doubting if God will preserve his life. So he and Sarai lie about, you know, the relationship as husband and wife. And, you know, it's just different dynamics. But God is using both men and really both families to achieve his goals. All right. So in the book of Job, let's just begin uh, chapter one and Job is in the land of Uz. That's that Jordan area, okay, and, and beyond. And he has, he has oxen. He has sheep. He has donkeys. He has camels. He has servants. He is a prosperous man. And he is a man who loves and fears God. He has seven kids. They get together on a regular basis. And when they do, Job is there as the father and patriarch and priest of the home, and he offers sacrifices for his children just in case they might sin against the Lord. He wants to make sure that they're covered spiritually with the Lord. That's very important when we're going to see one of the arguments that is thrown at the poor guy. okay. So he really is focused on the Lord, and he seeks the welfare of his family and their spiritual well-being with God. And so the day comes where the angels are in mass before the Lord, and Satan is there, okay? A lot of people think Satan is in hell. He's not. That's the end game. That will happen. But he is on the earth, he is in heaven. He has pretty much free reign uh, as far as this world's concerned. Okay? God's still on the throne, still controls them. We'll see that. But they're there, and I want you to notice what happens here. God initiates this. We're going to look at three conversations God and Satan. Job and his friends, and God and Job, all right? So it begins, and God says, beginning in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? You know, I think of this like, God, if you ever want to mention me in a conversation with Satan, I'm good if you don't, okay? I really am. But God initiates this, okay? He says, hey, have you considered... Job, he's blameless. There's nobody else like him. And it says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? You have, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to his face." And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So there's some things that we need to consider here. Number one, we live in two realms. Okay? We live in the physical and we live in the spiritual. And the life that we live... And the things that God does in our lives work in two spheres. Okay, we don't think about that too much, but that's what the Bible tells us. We see it here with Job, and you might be thinking, oh, well, you know, that's Job, okay? Well, guess what? You have the same thing going on if you're a Christian. Because in the book of Ephesians... What we're told by Paul is that, it's in, in chapter 3, what we're told is, is that God reveals his manifold wisdom to the angelic hosts, both demonic and holy, by the things that he does to the church. And it's not the church building, it's you and me, the body of Christ. God teaches angels things about himself that they would never know outside of his work in our lives and through our lives. When Peter is writing his epistle, he says that when the prophets were writing down the things of the gospel and what was to come, that the angels longed to look into these things and understand what are these guys writing about? See, they're not omniscient like God is. They're learning, okay, okay? And God reveals himself to them in ways that he works in us and through us. And that is such an incredible, astounding thought. And I just think of, you know, if God's using me and using me to instruct angels, angels going, oh, uh, God... um, why on earth are you using this dude? You know, oh, yeah. yeah, look at all that that you're doing through him. Look what's happening. Oh, God, you're so awesome. You're so powerful. You're so wonderful. God glorifies himself through us. And we also need to understand that we are in a spiritual battle, okay? We see it right out of the get-go last week in Genesis Satan longs to destroy the relationship that God desires to have with us. He desires to destroy our heavenly hope. He desires to ruin the things that God has for us and take us out and take us down. That's his ambition. So our lives are much bigger than the 9 to 5. Much bigger than the grocery store and all that other stuff. We are in a spiritual realm as well. And note that Satan can't do anything unless God allows it. You think of Peter, remember? Jesus says to Peter, um, "I need to let you know that Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you come through all right, I need you to comfort your brethren." Satan had to go to Jesus to ask permission to put Peter through the ringer. Peter needed it. Peter needed to grow. And we'll see that that's one of the things that God uses suffering for. So, in a matter of minutes, Satan wipes out everything that Job has. It's all gone. All his cattle, all his flocks, his camels, his servants, gone. And a whirlwind comes along and hits the house where his kids are together and kills all seven of them. He loses everything he has in a matter of minutes. And what does he say? He says, I've come into this world naked and I'll leave naked. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. And Satan had to be going, okay, I called that one wrong. Wow, this is not what I was expecting. So another day comes, chapter 2. Satan's there with the angels. Hey, have you considered my servant Job? Yeah, but you know what? Skin for skin. You let me touch his body? There's nothing a man won't do to preserve his life. You let me attack his health? He'll curse you to his face, to your face. And we know what happened. Poor guy gets hit with sores and boils, head to toe, and it's just a gruesome, awful, painful situation he's in. To the point where he's grabbing pot shards and he's scraping his skin for some relief. And his wife says to him, "You know, how long are you going to hold to your integrity? How long are you going to..." continue to hold to the lord. Just curse God and die. Just get it over with, man. And Job says, you speak like one of the foolish women. You know, God gives us good, God gives us evil. You know what? Okay, we just need to accept what God gives us. And it says he did not sin against the Lord in any of this. And you know, you could you could be a little harsh on Job's wife. Man, that's pretty cruel. But think about this poor woman. She has lost everything materially, just like Job has. And her seven beloved children have just been killed. Gone. Her world has come crashing down. She is suffering. She is hurting. And then here's her husband. He's just going, it's going from bad to worse for him. Just check out, Job. Curse God and go. This is, this is bad. But he didn't. And so in verse 3, Job, the only thing that comes out of his mouth is, I wish I was never born. Cursed be the day that I was born. I wish I was still born. Because life stinks. And I think we've all been in those positions where we get hit, we get blindsided, we can't make sense of it, and we just wish we could die. I can't handle this anymore. We live in a world that faces that type of feeling all the time. And people take their lives because of the pain that they're going through. They just can't handle it anymore. And they want relief. This man's heart was broken. In chapter 3, his three friends come and for seven days they just sit there. Now, what, what do you say? What do you say? Have you ever been with somebody who's going through the ringer and they're suffering horribly? How, how do you, what, what do you do? You know, if you've never been there, you can't say, I understand, because you don't, and don't dare say you understand if you haven't been there. Don't try to say, you know what, it's going to be all right. Have hope. God loves you. That doesn't help. I remember one time, my mom and dad, they had some real close friends, and I get a call. I was the pastor on call, and um, the gal's name was Margie, and she had an aneurysm, and she was in the hospital. They called me to go and, and be with her husband, and it's my first time I'm called to do a hospital thing, And I'm like, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? I'm praying the whole time and everything. And I walk into the the hospital room. And guess what wonderful, wise, pastoral wisdom I was able to convey to her husband, Terry. All I could do was sit down next to him and bawl my eyes out with him. That's it. All I could do was cry. And I felt like such an idiot. It's like, yeah, a great comforter you are. You know, where's the wisdom, buddy? he told me several days later that that was the one thing that helped him. Just somebody to cry with. Who knew? God, you know? But after Job talks about how he wishes he would die, his friends start chiming in because we want to make sense of our suffering. If we can wrap our minds around it, maybe we can fix it, or at least we can cope with it. Not having answers is frustrating. And so now Eliphaz speaks out. And in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. What he's saying before then is, Job, you were the go-to guy. When people suffered, when people were hurting, when people were going through stuff, you had the answers, you had the provisions, you had the money, you had the comfort, you had the homes, you had everything to help people out in their time of need. But now it's come to you, and you're despairing, and you're freaking out, and you're getting impatient. Well, it's your turn. And look at what he says now in chapter uh, four verse seven. He begins to basically accuse Job of being in sin. Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut, or where were the upright cut off? As I've seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Hey, it's been my experience, Job, that when people are going through this kind of stuff, they're reaping what they've sowed. It's something that they've done. And going down to verse 17, look at what he says. Because Job's like, I'm righteous. I haven't done anything. And Eliphaz says, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even his servants he puts no trust. And his angels, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth? Job, how is any man righteous before God? His own angels have sinned against him. He condemns them. Satan, you know, he's, he's having a conversation with God, you know, he's condemned. A third of the angelic hosts were condemned with Satan because of sin. If he doesn't trust his own angelic beings, he sure isn't going to trust you. If they're not righteous, you're certainly not going to be. And then in verse uh, 17 of chapter 5, he says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Job, look, it's good if you repent. Don't despise God's correction. You've done something. Look at this, okay? Don't be so bold as to say you're innocent. Just face up to it. Go to God and repent, and it'll be okay. Now, as I said earlier, we do a disservice when we try to explain why somebody is going through something. We may not know why. It may be obvious. Maybe we know there's sin, but maybe not. And it might be best if we just pray and keep silent and just be there. But Eliphaz is opening up a hurtful dialogue here. And he's condemning him of sin. In chapter 6, Job responds. Verse 8, Oh, that I might have my request,' and that God will fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. I haven't done anything wrong, and it would be better if he just kill me, because there's no reason that I can find that I need to repent of. So if he's going to, you know, come down on me and let loose, might as well just get over with and kill me. Going on, he confronts his accusers, if you will, in verse 24, or I'm sorry, 34. 24, I'm sorry. He says, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I've gone astray. How forceful are upright words, but what does reproof But what does reprove from your reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? It's like, you know what? If there's something wrong in my life, please show me. I'm open. I'll listen. Okay? But if you're coming down on me because of what I'm saying, look, I'm hurting. What what are you rebuking me for? Please, for what I'm saying? And you know, we're we're skipping over a lot of dialogue here and it's poetry and it's powerful and it's beautiful, but we're just hitting the nuts and bolts of this conversation. And he's going, come on, guys. I mean, you're accusing me. Help me. If something's wrong, show me. But I don't see anything. In chapter 7, verse 18, Job says, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days or a breath. What is man that you make much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. Now, you know, I hear Job say, what is man that you think of him? And I can't help but think of David in Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would consider him? You know, you've made him a little lower of the angel than the angel's. And clothed him with glory. So you got David going, wow, God, what's man that you you take such pleasure in him and bless him and use him? But Job's here in this position going, what is man that you care what's going on in his life? You know, you just test him. Why is he so important to you? He's just dust. And he's so frustrated and so brokenhearted. And... Now, Bildad comes in in chapter 8 reiterating what Eliphaz says, but he does it in a way that is just brutal. He says in verse 2, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? You're blowing smoke, basically. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will see God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you. Surely he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Do you see what Bildad says here? Your kids have died. God has judged them. Now, that's cold. Now, Bildad's, you know, making, trying to think it through. But here's Job who used to regularly make sacrifices to cover any sins that his children might do. So not only is he saying, your kids were sinners, and God judged them and took their lives, but he's saying, your sacrifices and your intercession and your prayers were insufficient. Which is incredible because when the time comes where God judges the three guys, the three friends, he says, you bring the sacrifices and you have Job intercede for you. God justifies him. But isn't that brutal? And you know what? I've heard pastors I've I've dealt with families who have had pastors tell them that their kids have died because of sin or because of the parents' lack of faith or walking with the Lord. Isn't that brutal? Wow. We have to be so careful in how we engage people in the midst of suffering. So Job comes back in verse 9, chapter 9, I'm sorry, verse 21. He says, I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. And then he says, it is all one. It's all the same. It doesn't matter. You're righteous, you're unrighteous. It's all the same. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hands of the wicked. He covers his faces, the faces of his judges. If it's not him, who is it? If God isn't doing this and allowing the wicked to prosper and do well and letting the innocent suffer, if God's not doing it, who is it, please? He's going to say a little later it doesn't matter if you serve God or not, it's all the same. You know? This guy is hurting so bad. He is going through the ringer in his faith. And he wishes that he confront God, could confront God. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Let me know what's going on, God. God. Does it seem good to you to oppress and to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? God, why are you doing this to me? Have you ever been there? I have. I grew up hearing, you know, you never argue with God. You never get angry with God. You never yell at God. Well, I've blown that. You know, I've had, I've had issues in my life come up where I have been outside and I have just flat out yelled at God and asked, what is your problem? What are you doing? All I'm doing is trying to follow you. That's a hard place to be. I'll tell you this. God can handle it. Okay. God understands our frame. He understands our weaknesses. And he's here for Job, okay? And I just say that because if you're in a place right now where you're going through it and you're angry and you're frustrated, God already knows, okay? It's okay if you're real with God. He already knows it. It's hard. He understands And then Zophar opens up his mouth, reiterating what the others have said. Chapter 11, verse 2. Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open up his lips to you. And that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Job, you need to watch your mouth. God is giving you less than you deserve. Thank you very much so far. I appreciate your comfort. Okay, And he's going to call them miserable comforters in just a bit. But this is hard because here is a guy who God himself has said, there is nobody in the entire earth like Job. And Job's the only one calling it straight. I haven't done anything. But yet he's getting pummeled by accusation and condemnation. Zophar goes on and says, if you prepare your heart, verse uh, 13 you will stretch out your hand toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Just repent, dude. Get right with God and it's going to be okay. And he goes on and Job says, you know, I, I, I used to be honored by people and now I'm a laughingstock. People look at me and despise me. And he says in verse uh, 9 of chapter 12. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? I'm innocent. This is God's doing, and I don't know why. I don't understand this, but I do know it's not for the reasons that you guys are saying. In verse 13... He's basically telling them to shut up. Okay, I don't want to hear any more. And in verse 13 he says, Let me have silence and I will speak. And let, what, let come what may. Whatever goes down, let it happen. This is a famous verse. But look at the context. Why should I take my life in my teeth and put my life in... In my hand, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Okay, that's chapter 13, verse 14. Though he slay me, I will put my trust in him. What Job is saying is I want to stand before God. And I want to present my case. And I'm going to take my life in my hands. And he's probably going to kill me. But my hope is that when it's all said and done, he will vindicate me. At least I die exonerated. Wow. Job. His desire to be known as a man of integrity is so great that he's willing to take his case before the face of God. Argue his case before God and say, I know I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm stepping into an arena here that's huge, and if he kills me, so be it. But I hope that he exonerates me. That was important to him, that he would be known as a righteous man. God knew it. Satan knew it. The angels knew it. Just these guys didn't know it. Chapter 15 Eliphaz comes in. Verse 4 But you are doing away with the fear of God, and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Verse 8 Have you listened in the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? Are you the only one that knows what's going on, Job? I'm not condemning you. Listen to the things that you're saying, dude. You're saying you're righteous before God. It can't be. Angels aren't even righteous before God. In chapter 16, Job comes back. Verse 2, miserable comforters are you all. Verse 4, I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. If I was in your place, guys, and you were in mine, I could say the same things that you are. Armchair quarterbacks. Making speculations and accusations regarding the holiness of an individual, the relationship with God, the sinfulness or righteousness of their life, they're not there. They're not there. And if we're not in that kind of thing, we do not want to speculate. We don't want to falsely accuse our brothers and sisters of things that are not true. God's going to take them to task because of this. Okay? We have to be very, very careful. And Job comes back and he just basically is saying, God hates me. He just hates me. He's so broken. So hurting. But then, in chapter 19, he makes a statement that is incredibly profound. This is huge. And if you take nothing else from this, I want you to take this, okay? He wants people to know that he is righteous. And in chapter 19, verse 23 Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I want this written down in a book. One day I'm going to die, but I am also in my flesh going to see my God. And this will be recorded so that when I am standing before the Lord, it will be known that I was righteous. Now look at what he says. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the last he shall stand on the earth. The word for Redeemer is very important because it's the word in Hebrew, goel. Why is that important? Because the goel is the kinsman Redeemer. The one who alone has the right of redemption to buy the property back out of, uh, out of um, you know, if it's been used as uh, um, collateral for a debt, he is able to buy it back because you have to keep the land in the family. If a person sells themselves into slavery because of debt, Only the goel has the right to purchase them out of slavery. Because if somebody else does, then they own that person. But this is family, okay? Only a blood relative can redeem. Only a blood relative. I know that my blood relative lives. This is why, one reason why, the incarnation of Jesus is so important. If you think to the book of Ruth, which we will come to, Naomi lost everything because her husband died and she had no right to the land. Ruth had nothing. Her husband died. They were, they, they, they were just trying to get by. Boaz was the goel. He had the right to buy the property back for the family. He had the right to purchase that property and take Ruth as his bride. And that woman became one of the blood relatives of the Son of God. But only the blood relative can do this. Jesus is our blood relative He is the second Adam. He is God in flesh. And he alone has the right to purchase us out of the slave market, as Paul says. In the book of Revelation, it speaks of the scroll. And it says, who has the authority to open the scrolls? And nobody was there to do it. And John is crying And the angel says, don't worry about it. The Lamb of God, he has the authority. And I don't understand how they figure this out, but scholars believe that that scroll is the title deed to creation. The Bible tells us that creation longs for the redemption and the glorification of the children of God, of the saints of God. Because when we are with Christ and we are in heaven, and he is on the earth reigning, all of creation will be put right. It groans for it. Because right now, Satan is controlling this earth. He, it was forfeited to him by Adam. I know my Redeemer lives, and in the last day, he will stand on the earth. Yes, he will. Isn't that incredible? And what's awesome is there's a guy named Abram that God is working in at this same time. And through him, that Redeemer will come. God's got it covered. Zophar comes back and says, no, God punishes the wicked. And in chapter 21, how are we doing on time? Hello? Okay, we're good, barely. All right, so long and the short of it, Eliphaz says, God judges the wicked. Job says, no, he doesn't. I look around and the ungodly prosper. And then, I want us to turn over to chapter 32. We're not going to read it, but There's a young guy named Elihu who comes in, and he's about ready to explode. He says, you know what, I've kept my mouth shut this whole time, letting Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the elders, deal with this matter, and you guys are doing a miserable job. So you know what, I'm going to make it right. I am going to call this as it is. And then in verse or chapter 33, he lets loose on Job. He says in verse uh, f- 5 of chapter 34, Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What, is, what man is like Job? Who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers, and walks with wicked men. For he has said, it profits man nothing that he should take delight in God. He's, he's just letting loose. And in chapter 36, verse 10, he goes on and says, He opens up the ears to instruction And commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen to and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and without knowledge. Eliphaz is saying, Look, here's the bottom line. You need to repent, God will forgive you, and God is using your suffering to turn you back to Him. The things that the guys are saying, as far as God uses pain and suffering to discipline, is true. That God uses pain and suffering to drive us to the Lord, it's true. But not all the time. And definitely not in this case. And then the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make, known, make it known to me. And then he goes on and he says, where were you? Have you commanded? Can you? What do you know? Earlier on, when Job is talking about the majesty of God and creation, he says the creation is only the fringes, the outskirts of his power And the whispers of who he is. So when God confronts Job now, he confronts him on the very things that Job brought up, which were just whispers and outskirts. He says, okay, Job, where were you when I created everything? Can you control creation? Do you provide for creation? What do you know about creation? And he's bringing Job to that place of humility before him. In chapter 40, God says, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Let's see what you got, Job. And he's not belittling him, but he's humbling him. He's bringing him to his knees. And in chapter 42, verse 6, Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Out of all of this, Job learns about God and now knows God in a way that he never had before, as does his friends. And God has Job pray for them, sacrifice for them, intercede for them that their sin might be forgiven because they misrepresented God. Job repented, he was right in what he was saying as far as his righteousness but he was wrong in his assessment of God's heart. And God called him to task on that. So with all that being said, why does God allow suffering? A lot of reasons. Punishment, correction, to help us see him in a bigger way, to draw us closer to him, to impact and teach angelic beings. There's a lot of different reasons that God allows it. And through the midst of it, God loves us and he's with us. Now, go over to Job, or not Job, Genesis chapter 12. And we see this other man, Abram, taking his own journey of faith. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and will make of you a great nation and will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's looking toward Jesus. So Abram went, Abram went, As the Lord had told him, here's a guy who's just getting to know the Lord and he steps out in faith. We live in a society where we want to have everything laid out and planned for us. If the Lord tells us to do something, well, okay, what are the logistics and what's the plan? What's our three-year plan? What's our five-year plan? What's the support? What's our structure? Uh, do we need a committee? How many committees do we need to do this? Hmm. Let's figure that. Makes me think of. Makes me think of the play. Let's do a committee. Planning isn't bad. It's not wrong. It's good. It's wise. But so often, I, I was reading. I was reading the, the autobiography of the heavenly man. His name is uh, uh, Brother Yun. And he said, missions in China and missions in the West are totally different. In China, God says go and we go. In the West, it's God says go and it's like, well, let me get my 401k put together. Let me raise my support. Let me make sure I have my insurance and my health coverage and then I go. Jesus didn't do that with the disciples. Take nothing for yourselves, not a money bag, not an extra cloak. Go. Again, it's not wrong to prepare, it's not bad to plan, but so often we put God in a box rather than just going. And when we have, Corey Ten Boom said, You don't realize. That all you need is God until God is all you have. All we need is him. And Abram was just getting started. I want you to leave everything, Abram, and go. Where? To a land I'll show you. Okay. We were watching uh, the uh, return of the, the Lord of the Rings last night. And it made me think. You know, they're leaving the, the place of the elves to go out on this quest, and Frodo's like, I'll do it, but I don't know the way. So they're walking through the gate of the city, getting ready to head out on the journey, and he says to Gandalf, Which way? I don't know which way to go. And Gandalf's going, Left, go left. It's like, Okay. And it makes me think of Abram. All right, I'll go. Where do you want me to go? I, uh, which, which way do I turn? I've walked down my front door. Where? Just go, Okay. And off he goes, trusting God. Wow, what an awesome story. And God blesses him. He has a hiccup during a famine. You know, he's got a knockout wife, 65 years old, and a beauty queen. And Pharaoh digs on her. And, you know, he says, okay, we'll tell Pharaoh that you're my sister, which technically is true. Uh, you're my dad's stepdaughter so you are my sister though you're my wife but okay that way he won't kill me and so uh, God punishes Egypt uh, because uh, he uh, tries to take her as a wife and that doesn't work well and then um, God leads him on through we have the the battle where Lot is taken captive by four kings of, of the Jordan Valley um, he chose to live by Sodom. And when Sodom got overthrown uh, because of the rebellion, he and all he had got taken in. And Abram goes out with the Lord and 318 guys and womps on four kings and their armies. Melchizedek shows up. Probably, I think, a Christophany. He's the king of peace. He is the priest of God. King and priest only Jesus fits that bill. Abram uh, gives a tenth, a tithe to him, and he takes nothing from the king of Sodom. And then, chapter 15, the covenant. And we'll wrap up with this because we have no more time, okay? But, chapter 15, Abraham says, I'm not taking anything because the only person that's getting glory for anything in my life is going to be God. And then it's like, okay, God, you know, wow, what do I have? And God says to him, don't be afraid. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Now, God's already said, I'm going to multiply your your, your family. You're going to have a bunch of kids, okay? O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Isn't that awesome? I'm going to give you not only one child, but look at the expanse of the family you'll have. Your descendants. Okay, we can't have kids, but I'm going to trust you on that one. He right, You're my man. You're righteous. Faith. Simple faith. OK, but then it's like, how can I know this is going to be? And what we have here is something called cutting the covenant. God has Abram cut three animals in half and then two birds, set them apart. And what the practice was in the ancients was that you you sacrifice the animals. You put a path in between their halves and then the people who make the covenant walk between them. Kind of gross, but they walk between them. And what they're saying is, if I breach this covenant, may it be done to me as is done to these animals. May I be cleaved in two. May my life be forfeit. Okay? So, Abram does this, and the birds of the air come and try to eat, you know, and pick on the, the carcasses, and he's shooing them away, We'll see later that birds are a picture of evil. They're attacking the covenant right now, okay? We'll see it in the story of Joseph and his dreams. So, that's an ongoing theme, but notice that the only person that walks between the animals is God. The entirety of the covenant is on his shoulders. What? He will do. All Abram has to do is trust. Isn't that awesome? Can you think forward to Jesus at the Last Supper? And he gives them the cup and says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm the one cutting the covenant. I'm doing this. You just believe me. I'm the one that's carrying the weight of this thing. God is so good. And here's Job looking forward to that day when his blood relative, Jesus Christ, will stand on the earth. And he will stand with him. God is so cool. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you that you have it all worked out and that our righteousness is not based upon our performance, but the work that you have done in Jesus Christ. And all you ask us to do is just obey, just follow you, believe you, and you'll take care of the rest. I ask that your hand would be upon my brothers and sisters and that you would bless them and encourage them, build them up and help them grow in their relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.